is Chelsea Higgs Wise. And I decided to start a show about being the biracial girl who was living her life, being half and half, never picking a side until one day the world informed me, girl, you're black. I'm from the listening to Race Capital with Chelsea Higgs-Wise and Kat Maudlin Jackson. First up, let's have some capital commentary about what's going on in the news. I will start. I had a lot of emotions going on this week watching my timeline and all the impacts that are going on with the transgender community. We've had our fifth woman, black woman, that was killed very violently this year that identified as trans and seeing my trans sisters just mourn this and it reminds me a lot of what we saw in 2015 and 16 in the news about black people being shot by the police we're just being re-traumatized in the news regularly and i just want to say a couple of their names malaysia booker tamika washington claire legato michelle simone rest in power and we do understand that this is an attack on our people Also hearing that Trump made it legal for homeless shelters to turn away transgender people happened this week. (laughs) Also, we heard that right here in our own Commonwealth of Virginia that we jumped on board with Trump's ruling of transgenders can't join the military and that validation. So even in our own state, we're not able to stick up for our folks. So I just want to send all the love, hug, support, amplifying, uplifting to our trans sisters of color that are often being attacked. But I know that these women are some of the strongest and bravest fighters that we know. I know that this past weekend, there was also an amazing event called She the People that had great representation of trans women of color, particularly Austin Higgs, who may or may not be my sister, was able to speak on a panel and just give truth to that. So understanding that this fight is real, this fight is for all of us and to make space for those conversations. So yes, there's still so much tragedy in the news, but make sure that we are lifting and empowering those that are doing the work here. So speaking of doing the work, Sabrina Fulton, who is Trayvon Martin's mother, is running for Miami-Dade County Commissioner, and her platform primarily focuses on gun control and anti-poverty. That's right. That's right. So shout out to a mom who (laughs) saw the need and stepped up. I mean, that's just as a mother myself, having to go through that tragedy and heal myself in a way that puts me in a place to take it and make a, a powerful impact to, to really make the change is inspiring. And it shows the resilience that we've always had and the idea that the community can come together for that type of healing. I would love to hear what she's been doing since, you know, over the, gosh, I can't believe it's been so long just over the last few years about her own journey and and deciding to step up. So congratulations to Mama Fulton. So one thing that kept popping up on the news and in my timeline, right? I don't know if there's so much news, but Game of Thrones is over. <laughs> I, look, we got to talk about it, Kat. It's all over no, the we, place. We, we have to. There's reasons we have to talk about it. <laughs> Oh, we have to talk about Game of Thrones. Right, right. So now that it's over, maybe people can now focus their conversations to a different part of the show. The idea of what is the place for a Black character 
in these series, right? Is it the one of the slave? Is it the one of the worker? Is the one that gets sacrificed? Is it the one that gets the mighty power to stand right next to the blonde white woman and be knighted as the commander of all the forces? Yes, I I do watch the show, by the way. But yeah, these racial dynamics and the narratives around this entire show, right? I saw a great meme that was like, hey, Black people, especially Black women, white folks are out here pronouncing Daenerys Targaryen. They can pronounce your name too, right? Like that, I was like, yes, this is the kind of conversation we've got to talk about. There's a picture out there of where all of the village folks are carrying Danny. I think they've nicknamed her, across. And it just looks like a bunch of brown people uplifting this pale white blonde woman. And I'm like, oh my gosh, this is where we are. Ew. I mean, it's a hit series. Since the beginning of the show, I'm not going to lie to you all, I had to take a little break because I was like, I can't keep up with all of the different storylines. And I'm I'm, I'm going to be real with y'all. This is not okay to say. I'm not proud of this. But I was like, all oh, these white people look alike. I don't know. I can't remember whose storyline is where. And I was like, because they're all white people with the same accents messing with their siblings. And I was like, this is a lot. We got dragons. We got incest. But still, black people are slaves. We can't, we still can't imagine black people anything else but being enslaved and serving and you said it best when you you said something to me the other day about you can imagine dragons but you can't imagine a world where you have black people that aren't enslaved hello like that's really that right i, I saw the the um commentary online and i was like well it's based out of europe so that's why there are so many white people y'all there's fiction it's fiction <laughs> there are dragons there are actual dragons maybe let's imagine something a little different yeah maybe i, I just Stop it. The the whole world in this show is imaginary. Stop placing it somewhere in Europe and validating the fact that it's been whitewashed. Yes, this is a great show. Lots of action. It, it's hit all the the news outlets of it. But again, what kind of stories for Black people are being championed? The one where we get our heads chopped off. The one that we are laying our bodies down and are super loyal to white women to protect them, right? This entire series was around protecting white women, the queens, for the throne. It's, man. And this is the most popular show of right now. Right. But it's over. So now it's time to take a look and say, how will history judge us, right, in 2019, that the entire world was got crazy? So you want to see how Trump got elected? You know, just look at Game of Thrones. There you go. Well, speaking of which, (laughs) the Trump administration is postponing the rollout of the new $20 bill. Oh, yeah. Yeah, which was supposed to replace the face of a slaveholder, Andrew Uh Jackson, with the face of a woman who helped enslaved people escape from bondage like Jackson. That was Harriet Tubman. Yeah, and right. I mean, the whole idea that they were going to change a $20 bill. And when, when was the year supposed to be? It was supposed to be 2020, but Secretary Mnuchin said it won't happen until 2028. Kat, do you remember when they decided that this was going to happen? It was a few years ago. Yeah, it was, I think, 2015. 2015, 2016. I remember thinking, oh, they had to wait a whole four or five years to make this declaration. And now we're just going to keep pushing it back. That's the theme of this country, right? Hey, hey people of color. I just need you to wait. Wait your turn. Just a little bit longer. It'll come. Don't worry. We got you. But no, not even on the money. We can't. It's not. We're not even asking for the money. We just want our face on the money. Don't hold your breath. (laughs) Don't hold my breath. Yeah. Last week, we talked about Delegate Ibrahim Samira Mm -hmm. and how a woman asked him in a town hall whether or not he was or how he was planning to implement Sharia law. Right. So she's back. Okay. <laughs> she, she's got comments. So her name, it's it's out in the media now, is Catherine Trauernicht. 
I think I'm not sure if that pronunciation is right or not. But she wrote a blog on this site called The Bull Elephant, and she said the following. Delegate Samira quickly took to the media to say he had been asked, how do you plan to implement Sharia law in Virginia? Of course, that was false, but he went on to play the victim card by claiming people had been mean to him because he's a Muslim. This too is false. He was asked about a central tenet of his faith, a tenet that is incompatible with the Constitution of the United States of America. So I don't really understand that. I am no expert. Mm -hmm, or mm -hmm. I am not a scholar on Islam. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I did minor in Islamic studies, so I have like a little bit of understanding. But I do believe that there are, in fact, a lot of parallels. One, there are a lot of parallels between Sharia law and the Constitution. And, you know, depending on how you're interpreting either one of them. Mm -hmm. Two, the victim card. The victim. You know what? Being a brown Muslim American here, you have all your rights. You have all the opportunities. There's no way you could be a victim. You know, for white women to do this like reverse, it sounds like the reverse racism thing, right? Yeah. Yeah. And it's just like, oh, well, everyone's so mean and you're too sensitive. And why don't you just ask the answer the question? And the fact that she's gone and made a whole blog post about it. This is the fact that we've got to learn how to read through certain media, too. Right. So what if someone comes across that blog post and that's their first exposure to this entire race? Yeah. Right. And because it's a white woman and we automatically give a lot of expertise to white people in general writing in the media, whether it's their own personal blog or from a uh, accepted platform. I'm just tired of it. I mean, honestly, I'm just like, who who are you? Why do you think you get to talk like this? And this is why we need to have these coalitions because somebody and a crowd, a group should be asking her and pushing her to the limit. It shouldn't always just have to be the candidate. Like we've got to have people on the ground willing to push the people that are creating these false narratives. So do you hear about the, the bus driver with the black dog? No. <laughs> this isn't a joke. This isn't a setup for a joke. All right. <laughs> so a bus driver, he dragged a 14-year-old biracial student down the street after the kid's <gasps> backpack got stuck in the bus doors. And apparently the bus driver has a history of racial discrimination. Yep. The student's mother brought a civil rights lawsuit against him, yep. saying it wouldn't have happened if the child were not biracial. And the man's response was, yep. I am not racist. Look at my dog. He is black as can be. Yeah, I read that. And then I shook my head and kept going. But that is it, right? I have a black dog. I have a black friend. I just, I, was he for real? I, I think so, yo. Like, I really think so. That was just so preposterous. Like, it's not even really worth batting an eyelash at. But sometimes you just have to. No. You had the entitlement and the nerve to say that out loud to some type of media source as validation of why you're not racist. You don't care about being looked at as a racist. That's what that tells me. You find this so hilarious that you just compared a black person to your black pet and therefore you accept all people and there's no way you could bring harm to a child. Did you just compare a black dog to a child? Probably. My God. What else you got? Apparently, from what I understand, Something happened in Portsmouth. Mm -hmm. Portsmouth prosecutors have been trying to pull back on <sighs> marijuana cases, like yep. dismissing mar uh, misdemeanor marijuana cases. And it was going, was going mm -hmm, mm -hmm, until mm -hmm. the city judges kind of pulled back the reins. Right, right. And saying that it's not the state law. They want to prosecute case by case. Mm -hmm. It really seemed like the prosecutor down there, Stephanie Morales, had had a conversation and was able to get everybody on an understanding from all levels down in Portsmouth. But now it looks like that has changed. 
with some pushback. And you know, this is honestly why to me, the idea of decriminalization and doing this on city level and, and different municipalities, it's gotta just be at the state. We need to just legalize marijuana at the state so it can stop targeting black and brown communities in this way. And these different cities don't have to have these conversations anymore. They don't, it's not gonna be on discretion or case by case because it's case by case. We know that there is always inherent bias depending on what case shows up. So yeah, the the I appreciate everything that the CAs and different localities are really trying to push their judges to not prosecute. But I think there needs to be a bigger conversation about what are we going to do at the state level, especially coming up in 2020, especially after the 400th year, especially after blackface. What does this look like for Virginia? And speaking of Virginia, let's turn our attention back to Richmond real quick. I've got mm-hmm. a couple more. Mm-hmm. It's my mm-hmm. second to last. Last week, I totally forgot to highlight an article that came up in RVA Mag recently about RTAP, the Richmond Transparency and Accountability Project. Mm-hmm. We had folks from RTAP on the show a couple of weeks ago, and that article was penned by our very own Chelsea Hicks-Wise. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. And you want to just give a quick rundown? Yeah, definitely. So it was penned by myself as well as Nathan Land and Monica Kelly. These two are VCU organizers and they've been working for over a year now very specifically around policing and if we have been keeping up and if you want to check out the article you'll see how it's not just Richmond policing it's also VCU policing and that as a city we need to understand how we are over policing black and brown communities historically and what that means for our future. So what decisions are being made right now that's going to impact the parity or disparity that continues for black and brown communities on policing. So it did come out on the anniversary of the death of Marcus David Peters, a shooting. But yeah, if anyone has any other feedback or anything about the article, I know I'd love to hear that and continue that conversation. Yeah, and even though it came out a few weeks ago, it is it is what it is, and unfortunately, this is an evergreen issue. So it's a read. It's a it's a read, and it allows us to have a conversation to continue to push the decisions made. Right, there are still decisions made about how we're collecting data, about what these field interviews can be, about the training. It's not over. We can still have our voice in this conversation about Richmond policing. So last thing in Richmond, shifting gears, mm-hmm. really hardcore. I just want to give a shout out to Carla Reddit at NBC12. <laughs> Yeah. She's school Joe. Yes, that was such a great uh, throwback that she posted up for us. So please, if you have not seen this, we have to just have a moment for Carla and the way that she took claim to her natural hair. And yeah, so you, you have it go. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, so so for those of you who don't know, yeah, who yeah. don't know what happened. <laughs> This man sent her a very racist email critiquing her natural hair as unprofessional. Mm -hmm. He also said that her hairstyle made her look like she was making a black statement as if that would be a problem. (laughs) She replied, hi, Joe. Thanks for your email, which makes you look unprofessional. (laughs) I'm black, so no quote statement is being made other than I wear my hair the way it naturally grows out of my head. She added more, but that made my day. It did. It was great. So please check that out. And Carla has always been a champion for the black community around here. She holds space. She shows up. She interviews and has the conversations. One of the ones that really sticks out to me is Miss Jessie 
founder was able to come to Richmond at Virginia Union a couple years ago and just talk about entrepreneurship and talk about hair and how her and her sister, who has since passed, were able to start the hairline Miss Jessie together. And Carla was the interviewer there. And Carla was able to really be vulnerable about her hair and her hair journey on the news as a reporter. And to see where she is today and that Inca position, right? And all the curls and naturalness and being able to tell Joe, no, this is just what it is with her smile and her curls flying. Congratulations to our own Carla. Yeah, that was great. But we would be remiss if we did not touch on the biggest news story of this month. Mm -hmm. Kelsey, Mm -hmm. you wanna? So Eastern Virginia Medical School teamed up with McGuire Woods to complete an investigation about who was in these yearbook photos. Number one, McGuire Woods is a law firm here in Richmond that has been throwing fundraisers for not only Ralph, but other governors for years now. And the idea of what kind of money and support they put into the Ralph campaign makes them pretty unqualified to do this type of investigation, if I say so myself. But as we heard, the investigation did come back inconclusive. We have no idea who was in those photos. They could not confirm nor deny nobody. They weren't able to talk to one person that was at that party, apparently that remembers anyone dressed up that way. We also found out that the president of the medical college knew about the photos. While during Ralph Northam's campaign, there was actually a reunion. They were putting out photos and they saw it and decided to not put it out. And that president, I believe it was another president as well that also saw this photo, still went and donated and supported Ralph. So they are very much hiding the information of the photo. They admit to that. They even admit to looking back, they would have put it in some type of reserve so it couldn't have been found. But, you know, it's public documentation, so they really can't do that. But that information is in the report if anyone wants to read that. So the idea that no one knew, I can't believe where that came from, it's a whole bunch of BS to me. And and it's exhausting and it really just continues to put into question of who was Coon Man in 1984? Is he different from our governor of today? But yeah, we will talk a little bit more about that later on in the show with Dr. Ravi Perry, who is on today, as well as Vina Lothe, who is running in Senate District 12. And they're going to discuss the importance of primaries, representation, and Vina's going to tell us a little bit about her campaign today on Race Capital. Up next, we have our very special guest, Dr. Ravi Perry, political scientist and lady extraordinaire running for SD12, Ms. Vina Lothe. Welcome, you all. Thank you, Chelsea. Thank you. Glad to be here. Yes, I was really excited to bring you two together because we have primaries coming up. And Vina, I know that you are out there really championing the idea of primaries because you are running. And I've been really excited to watch your campaign. And Ravi, you are just a person that speaks to civic engagement and being involved, period. So I think it's really important to have your voices on here today. Vina, I'd love to start with you and kind of hear a little bit about who you are and what got you into politics and what got you running for SD12. 
Well, thank you, Chelsea. I appreciate being on the show today. I am excited to be running in SD12. It's one of the hottest districts in Virginia. If we can flip that in one more, we flip the General Assembly. So it's really, really important. And who are you trying to unseat? Siobhan Donovan, Mm -hmm. who is a hard right winger who talks a moderate game. So she's going to be a tough one to beat. But the district is going bluer and bluer. It's becoming more diverse. So I have high hopes for it. So how long have you been running now? I have been running for over a year, and I decided to run shortly after Trump was elected. I've been an attorney for 25 years. I went to Cornell Law School, and I have practiced in civil rights law, union side, labor law, immigration law, all kinds of areas, and I've been helping people one by one, and it's felt good, and I've been really happy to be in the background as a community organizer, as an attorney who does a lot of pro bono work. It's made me very happy. But after Trump was elected and after I started taking a really good hard look at our government and the lack of diversity, I decided to kind of step out of my own comfort zone and get out in front. And I think it's really, really important. The Virginia General Assembly has never had an Indian American, never had a South Asian, has very, very few people from immigrant families. And that's not good representation for a state that's really, really changing. So it's important to me to be there and to do excellent work based on my years and decades now of being a lawyer and being on the other side and seeing when laws don't really work. We Mm -hmm. have a lot of laws that sound good and they don't do good because they don't have a way to enforce. They're just words. So I want to get in there and do a great job. I also want to open the door to lots of people who feel like they are closed out from the political arena. I know there's probably a lot of people who would like to run, who would like to be more active, but they are just assuming that the door is closed for them. And there was an op-ed that came out on May 22nd, and it was really about words matter, labels matter, representation matters. And how do you really bring that forward in the platform that you're raising right now and, and into your campaign? Well, I read the op-ed. It is not from our campaign. It's from 25 very active, service-oriented Asian Americans from across the state. Wow. I read it when everybody else read it, Mm -hmm. and I liked it a lot because I thought it was bold. So it's something I'm talking about a lot on the campaign trail. And what I'm trying to get people to understand is that it's not only the right thing to be a bigger tent policy, to think in terms of party, and to think in terms of coalitions, but it's also a really smart strategy. Because right now we've got Trump sitting there, and we can just run on Trump, Trump, Trump. Mm-hmm. But we need to be really forward focused in our party and right. think about what's it going to look like in five years. And we need to bring people under the tent. We need to think in terms of coalitions and we need to build real relationships. You know, if you're going to bring, for example, the Indian American community into the Democratic Party, you should know there's 20 different languages. Mm. You should know that India is like 20 different countries. Mm-hmm. And you should make a really genuine attempt because just the superficial stuff is not building our party. It's right. not building relationships. It's just checking off a box. Mm. So that's something we talk about a lot on the campaign trail about really, really coalition building. I love to tell the story that at one of our meet and greets, I stood in a corner with one of my friends for a minute, mm-hmm. took a deep breath, and we counted how many languages were in that room. There were at least 20 languages in that room. That's dope. <laughs> yes. That is really exciting. Yeah. It's exciting. It's It makes you want to get involved with the Democratic Party. When you can walk in and you can see someone who's been part of Enrico County for five generations, and then you can see someone who's been here for 20 years. That's exciting. Right. And that's the kind of thing that will get people involved in our party. Right. Tell us a little bit about where SD12 is, the Senate District. What does that cover, in case people don't know? So SD12 is generally anything you would think of as Western Henrico County. It kind of runs a jagged line around Virginia Center Commons as the border, the boundary. And then it also picks up a big geographic chunk of Hanover County. But it's kind of a rural area, so it's not a big part Mm -hmm. population-wise. I don't know if you've spent any time in Western Henrico County lately, but it's become very 
very diverse across so many different countries. Yes. Yes. No, I, uh, I've spent some time in Short Pump lately and have some friends over there. And I, I think it was after a snow day and I was leaving in the morning and I saw the bus stop. And the children, when I tell you this one bus stop filled an entire bus and they look like all Asian American families out there walking, I mean, filled the entire bus from one bus stop. And when I left out, it was an apartment complex. I looked and you know how Short Pump is set up with many apartment complex next to each other. It was the same type of pattern down the street. So it was... It was shocking to me from someone that pretty much stays in the city and, I mean, just conditionally talks about a very black and white and brown lens. But to see that right there of the community of what else Western Henrico can look like from what we think about, it was pretty powerful. It is powerful. And I think it's happened gradually. So people don't really realize Mm -hmm. how much is changing Mm -hmm. and how it's definitely putting the district in play. Indian Americans vote 77% Democratic. Okay. You look at Bangladeshis and Pakistanis, they're 85% right now. Wow. And that is an opportunity. Yes. That is an opportunity for the party. It's an opportunity for us to get smarter and to understand different perspectives. Definitely. So, Bina, you do have an opponent since you're running in a primary, Deborah Rodman. And there's been a lot of question and talk about, and Ravi, I'd love for you to kind of jump in on this one. It looks like the Northam's PAC is supporting Deborah. It looks like a lot of the status quo Dems are supporting Deborah. From a woman of color, I really just want to say that if we are serious about representation, if we're serious about having these conversations, it was really just disappointing to me that there aren't more conversations about this race in particular, especially since you've been running, since you've been running now for so long and been after the seat and been showing up to events. I met you at a few of Abigail's. Abigail Spanberger's events and you were there you were a great support and I also will be very honest with folks that I think a lot of times you and I were the only people of color in those rooms I really think we were (laughs) and but that's what was really exciting to me to know that you're brave enough to step in these spaces right to have a voice and to be the front lead of that I mean that's really important for women of color especially right here in Virginia as we talk about the many layers of our administration up at the top So I think that that's something that the party itself is really having to take a good look in the mirror about of what does representation actually mean? What does changing the narrative really mean? What does this transformation of the party, what are we going to be willing to sacrifice or who's going to be willing to sit down for other people to be able to stand up? Yeah, I agree with you completely. And I think one of the problems is that there's so many people who believe themselves to be pundits and believe themselves to be strategic. And they think they're able to pick the candidate who can win, who can be the most appealing. I think that's a problem. I think when we play the old plays that we often get it wrong Mm -hmm. because we're not on the ground and we're not seeing what inspires people. I can't imagine that pundits, party people, believed in Barack Hussein. (laughs) I mean, just the name itself. But the people believed in him and they were inspired by him. I think primaries are a good thing when people enter naturally or organically and they're individuals. When there is a perception of puppet masters, it is not a good thing. I think it pulls the party apart at the seams and we have to rebuild it. Yeah, it is a really difference of do the people pick or does the party pick? I think that the people tend to get it right because the people are the ones who walk into that room and cast their ballot. 
So I happen to be an expert on political representation, and so I mean, when we the when, experts, when yes. Well, uh, I, that's that's my area of expertise in yeah. American politics, and you so say it, Robbie. Yeah. One ahead. of the things that's really interesting about political representation that we don't really talk about a lot is that there's two kinds of representation. There's descriptive representation, of course, which is mostly what we've been discussing today, and then there's you know substantive representation, and so and I think it's important to mention that while it is absolutely critical to elect people of color, I would say particularly women of color, and you all may always see me championing that, and it's great to see more and more fresh faces running for office. We certainly need more of that. Ultimately, listeners need to understand, though, that you still have the responsibility to actually listen to these candidates, right? We can't assume sure. simply based on their background, right, that they actually are going to effectively represent the interests of even the communities from which they come from. I think and- we call that all skin folk ain't kin folk. Right, yes, exactly, <laughs> yes, right, yes, yes, yeah. Yes, yes. So it's important for, for constituents to, I would say, certainly be excited and champion more women, more women of color running for office. Anyone who really wants to put their hat in the ring, we need more and more people to seek elective office, particularly at the local and state levels, particularly in a state general assemblies. It's, 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 it's in these general assemblies where the Republican Party, for example, has been very effective since uh, the early 2000s in really changing uh, what those general assemblies assemblies look like. And as a result, then they're able to change the laws in each of these states. And so right now, three quarters of our states, three fourths of our states, general assemblies are controlled by the grand old party. And uh, what that simply says is that we don't have enough folks running for office who might be changing the guard, so to speak, because not only do you get a kind of sameness with a lot of GOP representation in terms of descriptive uh, representation, particularly obviously race and gender identity, uh, but you also you also see seem to get a, a lot of folks who think a more narrow way. One of the things about the uh, having a broad tent party, as in the Democrats tend to have, is that there are, are a much larger cacophony of ideas that the party actually has to deal with. And right. so that's why it's harder to get folks out. I get um, that. And so and in, in the primary season, it's really important to think about this. To be honest, no one votes in primaries. Right. So that's so. what I was going to say. <laughs> Talking about the descriptive and the substantive representation. Mm-hmm. I think that just talking to a lot of folks that aren't necessarily like into politics, it takes that descriptive representation to attract them to even listening to what a person's policy and things are about. So I think it's, I don't, I don't want to minimize the idea of that representation of what we can see very instantly like when someone walks in the room I think that gets us even ready to open up our ears definitely. oh it does yeah I, I only say that for really for two reasons one because I think it's important for us not to put the, someone of the cultural tax right on yeah. those who are of color or who are women or somehow cultural other tax. um and by simply being by, because of who they are, we yeah. we only like approach them regarding issues of people of color, et cetera. No, we have a responsibility for genuinely interested in engaging communities of color to be ensuring that all candidates, uh, regardless of their skin tone or their gender identity or what have you, is addressing those issues. And I would say particularly, of course, those who hail from those communities. Definitely, definitely. And right here in Richmond's local elections, I want everyone to know that most people run as independent. So that descriptive 
representation isn't something that you can necessarily count on. There might be a black person running for a local city council and they're going to claim independent or might even claim Democrat here or there just to look liberal. But it is so important what you're saying to hear what they're about, hear what their policies and what that substantive piece is. I'll only add one caveat there. They aren't independent. It's a nonpartisan system. There you go. And so because it's a nonpartisan system, we don't really know technically what their partisan affiliation is, which is why it makes it more difficult for folks to participate in local and state elections in many ways. That's a hangover from the progressive era in the early 1900s, where the idea was that by divorcing local and state politics of partisanship, that somehow the uh, legislative bodies would be better. Mm -hmm. I think the jury is still out on whether or not that's the case. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, Vino, when we're talking about representation, what are some of the battles that you've faced with this campaign? Well, I think we are getting a great reception at the grassroots across all different kinds of people. Mm -hmm. And that's been really, really exciting. And I think part of it is that I am the candidate that is out talking to people. I love having the conversations. I love going to the doors. And I love to listen and figure out what people care about. And I think that's something I've heard from so many minority candidates that you have to get out there and interact with people. So our reception on the doors has been great. We have seen so many people from minority communities who are really excited about this race. And we have people who even sit right of center who are excited about this race. It was interesting. I was at an event the other day and there was an Indian gentleman who I know has leaned a little bit right. And he came up to me and he said, I know you're going to understand me. I know you understand that as a brown immigrant man, I've had to work twice as hard to get half as far. Mm. And that has been the thing I have heard from everyone, that no one understands that Mm -hmm. and no one has given voice to that. Wow. And so it's been really exciting that these people hold these viewpoints and they've never had anyone to express it to. Right, right. They've never had the feeling that someone's listening. And I think that's really important for our party, it's important for our country to really dig deep and really listen to people. And that's what the campaign has been about. I am not a politician. I am the opposite of a politician. Mm -hmm. I'm an attorney. I'm a mother. At heart, I'm an introvert. And it's been exciting to be out there and to do something different. So the the primary is June 11th. Yes. And I know I'm really excited about your campaign. A lot of people are. But if for whatever reason results don't turn out that day, what can we expect to see from Vina? Well, even before I got into this race, I was an activist. I was mm-hmm. a pro bono lawyer. I was out there in immigration spaces. Mm-hmm. I was part of the Democratic Party at the county level. And I'll continue with all of that. And I believe that, Vina, because, again, I've seen you out. I've seen you in the rooms where it wasn't about you. It wasn't about your campaign. It was really about the people. And I know you've never said this to me, but just hearing your vibe and hearing your statements, I could feel that you showed up to a lot of those rooms, specifically in the races for 2017, or I'm sorry, for 2018, because you wanted their representation to be in the room. You wanted a brown face, a woman's face to at least be present, to hear, to to shift the conversation. And that's something I hold very personally dear to myself as well is showing up in those rooms. And like Robbie was saying, is that getting it on the tongues of all candidates that, hey, I'm here, which means you have to acknowledge my presence. Right. And and I appreciate people saying that I've never heard somebody listen to me. I've never felt listened to. And if for whatever reason in 2019, we still don't get the representation that we feel is necessary, that just means we need more people to run, as Robbie said. And that means that we need to keep pushing, keep going harder. We do. I think this particular election is extremely important because I think a lot of people are watching to see if an Indian American can be a viable candidate. You are a viable candidate, right? This whole idea of electability and and things of people asking me like, well, everyone knows Deborah. People are backing Deborah. And just like, well... 
have you asked about Vina? Have you talked to Vina? Have you seen or even thought about what someone like Vina could do for the district or for the state? So it's just an idea of shifting and opening up our lens, definitely. Well, and the and the challenge here is one. Uh, those of us who are plain old citizens and constituents need to be paying attention to the primary season. Mm -hmm. uh, we It would be very helpful if media, particularly mainstream local media, mm -hmm. played a much larger role in effectively actually in reminding people about primaries and talking about the races right. as if we were in a general, because we know uh, that's what networks do, for example, for general elections. And we need to do that in primaries because primaries are actually where you have have the opportunity to move the party, uh, whatever party you might be a part of, in a particular direction. Most cases, after the candidates have already been pushed through a general election, particularly in a bellwether state like Virginia, the 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 two parties have already have have two fixed positions at that point. And so, if you are part of uh, either party and you feel as though your interest and your ideas are not necessarily being best represented mm -hmm. uh, by those who claim to be members of the party at the moment, then it's it's the primary season where you have the highest likelihood of actually being able to make that impact. And so it's mm. important that people pay attention and vote in these primaries. And that, again, that we listen to what these candidates are actually saying. Yeah. Um, the, the story of a new candidates running for office, uh, particularly women and minorities, and them being challengers and not getting, you know, necessarily the party endorsement and then support is not an unfamiliar process. I mean, we can talk about everyone from Barack Obama to Hillary Clinton, even, uh, who, who did not necessarily necessarily initially when seeking office get the support that you would have expected on the national level um, but but once they were able to show that they would be able to get some particular uh, wins in some key states they were then that you know the support shifted and so so it's important to I think put the parties on notice by having uh, women and minority candidates run for office and and the more and more that run the more and more that are going to win uh, and that's going to increase the chances of diversifying the party not only descriptively in terms of representation uh, but substantively in terms of the ideas that people who are not white and male bring to either party right well as usual we have to get out there and prove ourselves twice as much <laughs> twice as hard right uh, that's life well, we're going to actually head into our next segment, which is... What's your privilege? What's your privilege is where we invite our guests to talk about their own privilege and how they use that to disrupt the myth of white supremacy within their own work. So Ravi, Vina, who wants to go first to talk about their privilege? I can go first. That's fine. Great. I would say my privilege is I was able to get an education, mm -hmm. a law degree, and that has helped me understand at a very substantive level a lot of these issues. For example, there is nothing more full of myth and craziness than immigration law. People literally don't understand it. And my ability to understand it and to explain it and to articulate it to a larger audience, I think has really helped people to understand not only immigration law, but the stereotypes around immigrants. And that is a message that I'm taking out to the broader audience in my campaign. Mm. I'm also able to understand why our gun laws are not working at all, mm -hmm. why at a state level we can do some things about health care, but not everything, mm -hmm. and that we need to become advocates at the state level to push the federal government. So um, I am taking my privilege. I have parents who helped me go through law school mm -hmm. and using that to articulate difficult, arcane concepts to people so they understand. Yeah. And running for office. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And using it to make a change. I appreciate that. All right. Dr. Perry. 
Well, I have multiple privileges. I'm a male. I'm middle class. This is how I was raised. I was raised in a family of educators. And on, on top of that, I speak English. It's my primary language. I identify as a Christian. And so I, mean, I try to carry each of these privileges with me because they provide spaces that allow me to move and operate in, in ways that without those privileges, I would not be able to. And so when I'm in those spaces, I try to take those opportunities to give voice to the issues and communities of those who are in need of their voices actually being heard. Because mm -hmm. in politics in general, it's very simple. It's a uh, definition is who gets what, or more specifically, who gets what, when, where, why, and how. And ultimately, if you're not on the agenda, then you're not on the agenda. Right. Thank you all for being here. I know Vina is going to run, but <laughs> run for office, but also run off the show. Very funny. Like, yeah, yeah, it was good. Good luck, Vina. Thank we'll you so much. Thank and you. thank you for everything that you're doing and will continue to do. Well, thank you for the work you all are doing as well. Absolutely. Very exciting stuff. Talk to you soon. All we'll right. be watching. Okay. Thank you so much. Well, that was a great conversation with Vina. Yes. She's always a delight. <laughs> I mean, it's great to have such wonderful, dynamic women running for office. Truly. Truly, especially right here in Central Virginia, where we've got a lot of interesting things happening in the Commonwealth. This was recorded last week where we just heard about the investigation results from the yearbook of our great governor. And I know this is something that people have been asking me about, something I follow very closely in February, and as you did as well. So if you all don't know Dr. Ravi Perry, he is the political commentator extraordinaire, truly. When we have the elections, you can find him on NBC12 giving commentary. You can find him on National Sources giving commentary. And so he's just another voice that you can always look for when you're like, what's happening in politics? What should I be thinking? What questions should I be asking? So I really just kind of want to ask you with the inconclusive results results of the yearbook. Where do you think Virginia is going now? Because obviously this blackface conversation necessarily isn't going away. This, I mean, really, this this entire saga is just exhausting. Uh, it's very exhausting. Truly. Every time that we're talking about this, we are not talking about the issues that matter to these communities that mm -hmm. have been hurt by the saga in and of itself. And that, of course, is unfortunate when you've got millions of Virginians who need their state government to stand up for them. And the other side that makes this all very unfortunate is this idea that that a politician that's currently serving in highest elected office in the state can somehow get a pass post a scandal like this because of some proposals of so-called racial equity. <laughs> um, well, so first of all, I, just for the record, I would certainly hopefully maybe someone from the state is listening. We'll make you know, sure they if, listen. If you're really serious about racial equity, one, you can hire a whole bunch of amazing firms, uh, like Race Forward does some of this work. Oh, Race Forward uh, is one of my favorites. <laughs> right. Yes. You can hire them, bring them in. Yep. They will actually show you racial equity. Yep. The Hayes Institute at, uh, at the UC Berkeley uh, does a lot of that training work as well. And I want to just give a quick shout out to Race Forward, too. And I think they were mentioned in a really great article on RVA Mag about equity and law enforcement. Mm. By someone Chelsea Higgs Wise might have written that. But yes, if you want to <laughs> look at the definition of equity and social justice straight from race forward, that was talked a little bit about that article. So that I mean, because here is like this I it's it's this idea that we should be giving the governor a pass because he's doing good things allegedly now. Right. Right. Well, first of all, we have to remember that if you are a Democrat, then the kinds of proposals he's suggesting now 
only post-scandal should have been things that you were doing on the campaign trail when you were seeking votes. Come on, Robbie. It's simply impossible for this governor to have been elected without African-American women. Uh, It's impossible for this governor to have been elected without African-Americans. And the idea that that somehow we should accept a half-baked apology regarding these issues is really in some ways just also just insulting to the black community, right? The the idea that, you know, he said things like, you know, he was surprised by, I'm paraphrasing, but way back in February that he was surprised by the um, level of racial angst and, and discrimination and attention still on these issues in the Commonwealth of Virginia. I mean, talk about privilege. I mean, right. I mean exactly. you, how are you surprised right. in the state where codified legal racism in our codes and laws actually began? It began here. Right. I mean, I mean, and does anyone, I mean, and I mean to, to the fact that you're just learning this while in office. Yes. And the idea that you're going to read Roots, I mean, that's Come just, on. I mean, this, this is where you're really becoming. It's just, it shows you, it tells you a few things. Things. One okay. tells you that he does not have a competent African-American staff advising him in a way that perhaps represents the current modes of the and, and attitudes and preferences of the African-American community. I don't mm-hmm. know who he has advising him, well, but I, not, I assume it's not someone who knows African-American community very well because that person should not have advised them to, you know, pivot to Michael Jackson, right. you know, to try to right. push away from... Right. You know, People <laughs> obviously didn't even get the minstrel show there. Like, talking right. yes, about exactly. Michael Jackson, like, you just like, proved just... that he gave more minstrel shows like coon man that makes sense you were probably the head star of the minstrel show or the medical school and you got that but yet clark mercer i think is his chief of staff has come out and taken a lot of blame for this they are now hiring a director of inclusion diversity person so i think that's going to be their black person that's supposed to come in and save the day at this point what can ralph northam do Right. What what do you think if if these policies that I think should have just been in there in the first place, not something that we get after effect, but what people are like, well, what what's the expectation? What should we be asking him to do? What what would be enough? Well, it won't be enough, whatever it is, because right. we don't have enough time to talk about all the issues that need to be addressed at the state level. But I can rattle off a few things that need to happen. Uh, one, uh, this state does not require that students in K-12, through particularly 9-12 through public education, learn anything about race and ethnicity in this country. Uh, we should, we could be requiring ethnic studies mm. uh, in the 9-12 through public school levels. The governor can get that agenda item moving with some momentum. Yep. Uh, the governor can work with the Transportation Board to get not just allow certain cities to change certain portions of Jefferson Davis Highway, write a write a executive order where at least as long as you're governor, that the highway is not going to have that name and right. encourage the General Assembly and the and Transportation Board to obviously to, to make the steps necessary to change it. If he's serious about actually helping uh, communities of color, he could be funding them. They're, they're mm. one of the f- few issues, one of the few major problems that African Americans in particular have is, is around procurement and right. around uh, their ability to actually get grants and compete for state and local grants. And so on terms of the state grant process, he could be working with minority business and women-owned enterprises and actually ensure that they have the capacity necessary to effectively apply for these state grants and, right. and then, of course, have the likelihood of getting them. Exactly. That contributes to the economic development of the black community. And last thing I would say, there are HBCUs here in Ooh. the Commonwealth of Virginia. And if Ooh. he's serious about funding African-American experience and, and about education of the African-American 
experience across the Commonwealth, then he could be proposing the HBCUs here in the state get the same funding yes. as their predominantly white institution peers. I'm working with a lot of scholars from VSU right now with our fellowship of researching yearbooks. And that's all they keep saying is that they themselves and their institution, they need more resources and funding so they can do their own research, their own archiving to know the history of their own school. So these students are also asking for this. I also wanted to bring up the great point that you're talking about money and the idea of funding black communities. It's so interesting to me that this word equity has just kind of evolved into like representation when equity is also about money. It's also about making sure that those resources are available. So when we're talking equity, a lot of people don't realize that we have to also have participation in this economic world as well. So I really appreciate that you brought up the funding. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think it's really important to remember that and to not allow anyone to create this synergy around the idea of equity and and treat it like we're talking about equality right. or treat it like we're just talking about some undefined kind of justice. Right. Equity has a very specific definition, like you said earlier, and it, and it inherently includes trying to create parity between groups uh, across socio-political economic levels, and that requires money. This is a capitalist society that we Hello. live in. And so, for example, with HBCUs, we don't need the governor to sit down and meet with HBCU presidents, we already know what those presidents are going to tell them. Right. We need the money. Right. So, so the question really is, what money is he willing to set aside mm. uh, to fund the communities that have been underfunded? Mm -hmm. Everyone knows HBCUs are way underfunded. And in the year where Virginia State just got a national recognition of being HBCU of the year, Hello. I mean, you would think in a year in which we have the National Teacher of the Year, who is a <laughs> dynamic black man doing amazing work in the juvenile justice system and in education, I mean, you would think that we we have all of the momentum necessary to actually create equity. Mm -hmm. the, so the question is whether or not they're willing to do it. And equity is not a discussion. Equity is an action. And Boom. so I'll, I'll be waiting to see if that actually occurs. So what kind of action are we asking for from our state legislators? Particularly, I would love to hear any thoughts around the Black Caucus. Black caucuses uh, tend to be conservative in terms of ideology, and uh, that is certainly the case here in the Commonwealth of Virginia. I think it's largely limited, frankly, by the uh, the average age of most of the members. And so what I think we need to do is we need to consist, again, we need to consistently seek more African-Americans to run for state-level office so mm -hmm. the caucus can perhaps represent the interest of all kind of black citizens here in Virginia which are not just those who, for example, are okay with Northam scandal, right? Or not right. just those people who find some way to justify that the state hasn't actually addressed a lot of these racial issues to begin with. I mean, th there is a portion of the population that, for example, is extremely disheartened by the entire idea that this year has been designated, right? A year of reconciliation and civility. <laughs> it's quite oxymoronic and the, the, the juxtaposition of all juxtapositions to have the year be labeled reconciliation and civility, and then yet you're working on racial equity. Uh, one is symbolic. And, and and cannot happen un unless you actually bring groups together right. to actually have difficult discussions. You can't reconcile that which hasn't been conciled to begin with. Hello. And so you have to first bring people, literally bring them together and yeah. literally have those hard conversations. And then you might have the possibility of reconciliation. But that's unlikely even then, of course, because it's unlikely that we're going to agree. Right. And so ultimately, you know, I think that we have an obligation to ensure that as we address these issues broadly, 
broadly speaking, that we keep our politicians to task on mm-hmm. the issues that matter in communities of color, mm-hmm. and that those include our own politicians uh, who may be uh, African American like myself. We have to have to constantly keep them to task as well. Right. Uh, and many of them were not very effective, frankly, in in this February scandal situation, and and that's unfortunate. Right. Right. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Ravi Perry, political scientist, representation expert. Uh, how can people follow you and follow your work? Uh, on Twitter at Ravi Perry. Awesome. And I know that you're writing a book that we can all look forward to. Yeah, I'm writing a book, Black Queer Elect- Electoral Politics, Introducing America's uh, Black LGBTQ Candidates and Elected Officials. It should be out next year, 2020. Congratulations. Well, will you come back on the show? Absolutely. Our- For you, I'm always ready. <laughs> Thank you, Robbie. Thank you so much. Well, we'll talk to you later. Yes. Thank Bye. love Robbie. He's really one of my favorite people. And being able to have such great access to him and just chit chat over the things that are happening on the news, whether it's on the phone, text or on the radio has been pretty awesome. I think I might have noticed I didn't give my privilege. Yeah. Yeah. But that's okay. That's all right. You can tell us now. Okay, perfect. So my privilege that I was thinking about as we talked about primaries and the importance of representation is the fact that I do have the right to vote. My father was incarcerated for a long time and just got the right back to vote in 2016. And we all went as a family for him to vote. And that was an amazing moment for all of us, including my daughter, who has a great picture of that. And so she's been voting with me every time. And she understands that we vote for people that make laws. But that's not something that is just inherently ours and still at this moment. So my privilege is absolutely that I have the ability to cast my voice on a ballot. And with that ballot, I want to see some equity. I want to see candidates that are coming with the real, that are ready to push our governor to really have an agenda that focuses on black and brown people. And y'all are going to get sick of hearing me say this, but I really do, in my heart of hearts, hear and see the idea of marijuana legalization being a pathway towards that equity. Looking at the criminal justice reform that we could expunge records, that we could literally release people from prison, like legalize freedom, right? Not just legalizing marijuana, as well as making a very intentional space for black and brown people that have been in the black market of marijuana, but carving space into legislation for them to also participate in this industry, right? So not just the folks with the great credit that can get the loan, also the folks that have been impacted first and worse with marijuana legalization. This is justice and marijuana. So you're going to be hearing a lot more about that in shows to come. (laughs) And we want to invite you all, if there's anything specifically about marijuana that you want to share with us or that you'd like to hear or any other episode topics in general, feel free to drop us a line at racecapital@gmail.com or on all the social medias. Definitely. We're always around. We'd love to hear from you all, and especially as we continue to have the conversations with our candidates about what we want to see and what issues we want to bring forward and how we're going to be bold in this 400th year of Africans trafficked here from Africa and and say that, hey, we are about this transformation. We are acknowledging the past and we are doing the action of equity, as Dr. Perry told us, that equity is about action and reconciliation is just symbolic. So I'm excited for that conversation. I'm excited to encourage everyone to jump on to Marijuana Justice. 
And I'm just thankful for another great show right here on WRIR. You're listening to Race Capital. I'm from the R, the I, the C, the H, the M, the O, the N, the D. That's my I swear to God. 